We must adapt our socioeconomic models so they have a human face because many models have lost it. Thinking about these situations in God's name, I want to ask the big corporations to liberalize patents and to carry out a gesture of humanity and allow every human being access to the vaccine. Financial groups and international credit institutions to guarantee poor countries the basic needs of their people and to waive those debts so often contracted against the interests of those same peoples. The large mining, oil, forestry, real estate, agribusiness companies to stop destroying nature, to stop polluting, to stop intoxicating people and food. The big food corporations to stop imposing monopolistic production and distribution structures that inflate prices and end up withholding bread from the hungry. Arms manufacturers and dealers to totally cease their activity which foments violence and war often in the context of geopolitical games that cost millions of lives and displace many people. Technology giants to stop preying on human weakness, people's vulnerability, in order to make a profit. The telecommunications giants to liberalize access to educational material in exchange with teachers via the internet so that poor children can be educated even under quarantine that the media put an end to the logic of post-truth, disinformation, defamation, slander, and that sick attraction for scandal, and that they seek to contribute to human fraternity. Powerful countries to stop aggression, blockades, and unilateral sanctions against any country anywhere on earth, and that conflicts be resolved in multilateral fora such as the United Nations. That governments and all politicians work for the common good, let them beware of listening only to the economic elite. May they be servants of those people who ask for land, shelter, and work, and a good life in harmony with all humanity and creation. All of us religious leaders, that we never use God's name to foment wars. Let us stand by our people, the workers, the humble, and fight together with them, so that integral human development may become a reality. Let us build bridges of love. Those are the words of Pope Francis, the Bishop of Rome, and this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchowskis. Wonderful to be back with you. On this episode, we return to the book Mysterium Liberationis to examine Juan Luis Segundo's essay, Revelation, Faith, Signs of the Times. We've already covered Segundo's background and a few of his writings in previous episodes, but to quickly refresh our memory, Segundo was a Jesuit priest from Uruguay who was born in 1925 and who died in 1996. According to Alfred T. Henley, if Gustavo Gutierrez was the principal founder among the many founders of liberation theology, then Juan Luis Segundo was the dean of them all. Segundo has several influential 
texts, but perhaps is most prevalent, is The Liberation of Theology from 1976, a bombshell that turned theological method on its head. Like many liberation theologians, Segundo studied in some of the most prestigious universities in Europe, like Louvain and the Sorbonne, and rubbed shoulders with the heavy-hitting European intellectuals of his day. His European education, however, did not depreciate but enhance his Latin American character. Sometimes things are best seen in contrast. Segundo was a strong critic of the European intellectual tendency to dehistoricize human experience and address philosophical and theological questions of little import to the average person. At one point, he flippantly remarks that most Christians could care less whether God is one substance and three persons or three substances and one person, and he's probably right. What the masses of Latin America ask of theologians is a partnership with the social liberation of their community, and that's precisely what Segundo intends to do. So without further delay, let's get into this week's text, Revelation, Faith, Signs of the Times, by Juan Luis Segundo. Segundo is funny, or at least he tries to be. He begins by suggesting that the editors of the book wanted him to throw together the topics of revelation, faith, and the signs of the times in one chapter in order to save some space. And it's true, we might ask ourselves, what do these topics have to do with each other anyways? And Segundo's bad academic jokes aside, upon further examination, one might think that the order, revelation, faith, signs of the times, follows a certain descending deductive logical pattern. First, God reveals a truth about God's self or about humanity. Second, human beings respond to this revelation with the yes of faith. Third, human beings apply the truth they have accepted to the signs of the times, the concrete problems they are facing. And indeed, that's often how many people think about theology. But Segundo, while acknowledging the validity of this logic from a certain deductive theological perspective, wants to question this approach. He claims that it does not reflect how these three concepts actually interact in the concrete history of humanity. In fact, the structure is quite opposite. Humans face the signs of the times, bet with faith on a way of addressing these signs, and come to understand their way as revelation if it's successful. This sequence, a more grounded one, he calls the anthropological sequence, which he claims has certain pedagogical advantages. And given Segundo's proposal of this new sequence, one might assume that he'd begin with the signs of the times, but he wants to make things hard on us, so he starts with Revelation. But really, what Segundo ends up doing is talking about both the theological and the anthropological approaches throughout the chapter anyways, so it's not that big of a deal. Let's begin, though, as he does, with Revelation. Revelation is always about God and about humanity at the same time. When God is revealed as creator, human beings are revealed as creatures. When God reveals that God will liberate the Hebrew people from enslavement in Egypt, God also reveals that Moses will be the human instrument of this liberation. When God is revealed as father, human beings are revealed as children of God. 
Segundo sees revelation as a type of communication, and according to one prominent theory of communication, to be effective, communication must be both understandable and interesting, and must produce a difference in the existence of the receiver. First, communication must be understandable. That's why God speaks to human beings through human language and through actions that we can perceive with our five senses. Segundo is pulling a sort of Kant here. Kant thought that our reason is structured by categories such as space and time and that humans cannot understand apart from these categories through which our comprehension of reality must be filtered. If this is the case, then God would only be able to successfully communicate with us through these structures, and that's precisely what God does in the Bible. God communicates with us principally through interventions in human history in a way that can be recorded by our language in a document like the Bible. And that's also why Segundo is critical of negative theology and its emptying spirituality. According to negative theology, there is an infinite chasm between God and humanity. And because of this chasm, all human understanding of God is radically inadequate. We cannot say much about who God is. We can only say who God is not. For Segundo, Christianity is quite the opposite. Jesus Christ takes flesh, becomes a human being, and we come to see who God is through God's radical closeness to us in Jesus. God is not separate from us in Christianity. God is close in the person of Jesus. Segundo likes to point out that we often say Jesus is God, when we might more properly say God is Jesus. It's not as if we have a prefabricated mental conception of God apart from history that we verify when we see God in history. Rather, we only come to know God precisely through history. God's historical action populates our understanding of God. It's not that our a priori idea of God simply expresses itself in history. Without God's action in history, we would not know who God is at all. So first, Revelation as communication must be understandable in concrete, historical, human terms. Next, it must be interesting. I know a little bit about this in the sense that if a college professor creates an elective course of little interest to students, then it won't fill up and the professor's message won't be received. And if someone creates a podcast with little intersection with people's fascinations, then no one is going to listen. If a movie is boring, people will pull out their cell phones, leave the theater, and or tell their friends not to see it. So too with God. If people perceive that God has little to do with their lives and interests, then they will likely move away from God. If a preacher is dull or stuffy, then that preacher will not have much of a congregation. So just as communication must be understandable, it should also be of interest to human beings. And third, revelation must make a difference in people's reality. Take the example of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus finishes this story about about a compassionate person who cares for someone else who's been injured and left for dead, Jesus tells his listeners, go and do likewise. If his listeners do not go and do likewise, then the communication between them and Jesus has failed. There was no change in behavior that resulted from the communication, so the communication was not a success. Similarly, if a professor assigns a task to a student and the student does not complete the task, then there was a breach in communication. Perhaps the professor wasn't clear in the assignment instructions, perhaps the assignment wasn't interesting and the student didn't want to do busy work, or perhaps it's something else. But either way, Way, 
if it doesn't get done and there's no change, then the communication has failed. All of this is to say that many folks think of revelation in terms of orthodoxy. Do you believe what God has revealed? If you do, then you're a Christian. If not, you're a heretic. There's something to that, but it's certainly not the most important piece. Rather, Segundo is trying to get us to see that orthopraxy, right action, is more central than orthodoxy, right belief. You may believe the teachings of the Nicene Creed, but if you do not love, then your faith is in vain. That's what St. Paul says. <laughs> we can see rather starkly the way that Revelation made a difference in the lives of the founders and reformers of some of the church's religious orders. God spoke a word of difference to St. Francis of Assisi, and Francis shunned his family's desire for him to be a wealthy merchant. He experienced a very concrete conversion to spiritual poverty and the poverty of solidarity. God spoke a word of difference to St. Ignatius of Loyola, and Ignatius left behind his life as a nobleman and soldier laying down his sword before a statue of Mary, quite literally. God spoke a word of difference to St. Teresa of Avila, and a Carmelite order that had grown lax in its practice of poverty took a sharp turn towards simplicity. To further illustrate this point, Segundo brings up a quote from John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. Quote, very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Very truly I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. End quote. Segundo then considers the way that St. Augustine interprets this passage. Quote, if the Spirit does not resurrect, then why are you speaking to me, God? If you are not making me better than I was, then why are you speaking to me? End quote. This Augustine quote is very significant. And I would say also as an aside, one of Segundo's great skills as a theologian was his vast understanding of patristic and medieval theology, which he could use to connect liberation theology to the broader Christian tradition. That's precisely what he does here. Augustine notes that revelation is meaningless if it does not produce a change, if it does not make him better. The point of revelation is to occasion a resurrection, a revolution in the individual and in society, a true conversion of repentance if repentance is taken to mean an about turn, a metanoia in one's life trajectory. Revelation is meant to make us live better, for human life to be better. It's not an open sesame, but a two-way communication that requires action on the part of the receiver. Revelation is not principally for knowing, but for acting. There will be no test on the Apostles' Creed at the gateway of heaven. The question will be, and is according to scripture, what one has done for the poor. Segundo observes that this way of viewing revelation is consonant with the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. In Dei Verbum, paragraph 12, we read, quote, God spoke by means of human beings in a human manner, end quote. Similarly, in Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 22, we find, quote, The same revelation of the Father and of his love in Christ fully manifests the human being to the human being himself and discovers him the sublimity of his destiny, end quote. God reveals in a human way for the sake of human action. As Gaudium et Spes also says in paragraph 11, God, quote, directs the mind towards fully human solutions, end quote, to our historical problems. And so Segundo concludes his section on Revelation with a powerful quote, 
quote, until orthopraxis becomes a reality, no matter how ephemeral and contingent that reality, Christians do not yet know the truth, end quote. Truth is not made known as truth at the level of ideas, but at the level of practice in reality. That was Segundo on Revelation, now Segundo on Faith. Just as Segundo spoke of Revelation in terms of a message that produces a change in human history, what we might call anthropological revelation, Segundo speaks in his section on faith of an anthropological faith. He means that human beings must make choices about the paths they will choose. But we do not have certainty that our choices will end in fulfillment. Whenever we make important life decisions, we do so with faith, trusting that our decision will bear fruit. We choose a college. We choose a major. We choose to get married. We choose a career. We choose to move to a new city. We choose to have children. We choose to participate in a religious tradition. Or we choose not to do so. We choose to engage in certain political actions. And in each of these choices, we are making a wager. We are betting that our choice will be a good one. But we don't know if it will be a good one. We have to trust. And I think here of my own joining the Society of Jesus. I remember speaking with a man who was going to become a novice. He and I had met each other the summer before I was also going to become a novice. We were going to become classmates together and enter the novitiate together. And he said, what do you think about the pilgrimage? And I said, what is the pilgrimage? And he said, well, they give you a one-way bus ticket and about $30 and send you on your way. And then you have to survive on your own for 30 days and then head back to a given location on day 30. You can't show up a day before or a day after. And I thought, to myself, wow, I did not know that that was part <laughs> of the Jesuit formation process. I've said yes to being a Jesuit. I didn't know that that was going to be a part of our formation. And yet I ended up doing it and it was a very powerful experience. And maybe a different day I could share more about that. But it's simply the case that when we make a big life decision, we don't know all of the implications of that life decision in our future. We just have to trust. These choices along our life path are part of a quest for the meaning of our existence. We opt for what we find the most significant to us. Our choices can cause us to feel both fear and excitement. And certainly the idea of that pilgrimage brought me both fear and excitement. We might be afraid that our decision will not have been a good one in the end. We can second guess it. We have our doubts. Is this really going to work? Or we might be enthused that a new chapter of our life is beginning, a new chapter with almost endless possibilities. Segundo says, quote, history is exciting. It is like an open promise, end quote. Human beings take charge of history. The problems of oppression that the poor face are human-made. They derive from unjust human structures. And just as injustice is constructed by humans, it can be deconstructed by humans through community political action. And it's exciting to consider that we human beings can shape our history. We can shape our destiny. God gives us the free will, the strength to do so. God gives us a community with which we can work together to do so. When we enter into this process of deconstructing oppressive systems and creating just ones, it's true that we have no guarantee of our project's success. We have no crystal ball with which to see into the future. 
But our Betts is not totally blind. We have collective memory. We have witnesses from the past. Think, for instance, of the way in which Hugo Chavez and Nicolás Maduro frame their work as the continuation of the 19th century revolutionary Simón Bolívar. These 21st century leaders refer to their revolutionary movement as a Bolivarian revolution and to Venezuela as a Bolivarian republic. They bet the success of their contemporary revolution on the possibility of a success similar to that which Bolívar had, that their success would continue in that trajectory, that the success of the past would motivate successes and change in the present. As Segundo writes, quote, the option for freedom is based on that memory, end quote. And Franz Fanon held a similar view to that of Segundo. Fanon claimed that the organization of struggle would have success among rural people because they were the ones who had the strongest public memory of the heroism of the original fight of the colonized against the colonizer. Rural folks still sang the songs of the resistance movement against the first colonizing act when many others had long forgot these songs. The option of resistance was alive amongst the rural people. In Revolutionary organizers should tap into that living memory to further action toward freedom. When we make a bet on a particular path to pursue in life among the paths available to us in our social context, we make an act of anthropological faith. Every person, whether identifying as religious or not, makes this choice. It's an unavoidable one. We all select a life that we think is best, and we stake our happiness on that selection. Segundo writes, quote, In summary, every human being is a free being, structures the world out of what for him or her bids fair to have meaning and value, relying on other existences that are testimonials to how a satisfying human existence can be lived. Everyone chooses from within this collective testimonial, end quote. I wrote my graduate thesis in social philosophy on this point, interpreting the film The Tree of Life by Terence Malick in dialogue with the philosophy of Martin Heidegger. I argued that the main character in the film is discerning whether he will adopt a life path more like that of his mother, a kind, generous, loving person, or like that of his father, a cold, calculating, ruthless person. The film is a simplified version of what Segundo is talking about. The culture we consume and the people we meet, especially the people closest to us, offer us possibilities for constructing a meaningful life, and we choose what's most convincing whether by logos, ethos, or pathos. This position of moral philosophy is often called nested moral voluntarism, and it was influential amongst many of the liberation theologians who studied in Europe during the heyday of phenomenology and existentialism. The questions that emerge for us are, what is my path, and what is the absolute end or goal of my path? What is that whose loss for me would be the death of meaning? What are we pursuing? At the end of the day, Segundo argues that our pursuit is inevitably one that affects us. We pursue that which will make our lives better. And if it does not make our lives better, if it leads to frustration, then we will abandon that pursuit for one that's more favorable. But if our pursuit does bring a better life, if it leads to success, then we consecrate it. Let's return for a moment to the Exodus story to illustrate Segundo's point here. In their situation of enslavement, the Hebrew people are not living a good life. So it makes sense that when presented with the possibility of freedom in Moses' movement of emancipation, they would throw themselves behind it. However, when they 
cross the Red Sea and face extreme hunger and thirst, they turn on Moses, don't they? They say, we were better off in Egypt. At least there we could eat. And this critique makes sense. What is the significance of freedom from slavery if it only results in death by starvation? But after the Hebrew people do find food and drink and make it to the promised land, they look back on the experience of their liberation through the eyes of faith. Their successful project is then consecrated in ritual practices of remembrance and codified in sacred scripture. So returning to where this episode started, what is the order that we observe among the elements of revelation, faith, and signs of the times? Is it not the case that historically and anthropologically speaking, the signs of the times, the Hebrew situation of the oppression of slavery came first? And does not faith the trust in the mosaic process of liberation come next. And isn't it true that revelation, God's word in sacred scripture, comes last upon the confirmation that God indeed successfully brings freedom through Moses? I'll bet that the books of the Hebrew Bible were written after, not before or during the events of the Exodus. It was only when fruitful praxis revealed that God's hand was on the liberatory process that these events were definitively understood as revelation. Segundo writes, quote, There is no such thing as divine revelation unless there is a human quest that converges with this word, a quest for which the word of God signifies a liberation of human potential and values, the making of a human being better than he or she was. This is the game that God agrees to play in the divine self-communication to the human being, end quote. We see in Segundo's quote here a God who is intimately caught up with the beauty and the struggle of the human person. A God who created human beings and called human beings very good. A God who witnesses the struggle of human beings, who decides to enter into the arena of human struggle through various interventions in the Hebrew scriptures, and then finally in Jesus Christ, taking the form of a human being, accompanying us, showing us the path to liberation, that we would be recreated as God originally created us to be very good, that our creation would flourish. That is the reality seen from the view of God. But Segundo in this essay is mostly speaking about reality from the perspective of human beings. Human beings interpreting the universe, looking around, finding meaning in the universe, attributing that meaning to God the Creator, experiencing the human person of Jesus Christ, journeying with Jesus Christ through history, journeying with Jesus Christ to the cross, journeying with Jesus Christ in the resurrection, and then after all of that, interpreting Jesus Christ as God's presence amongst human beings, interpreting Jesus Christ as God. This is who God is, Jesus. And then that Holy Spirit coming upon the church, the church wanting to share that message of liberation that Jesus was bringing to humanity, and that that message spreading and being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the vision from humanity. Both of these visions are beautiful. Both of these visions are true. The anthropological and the theological visions. And isn't that what Christianity is? The coming together of heaven and earth, the coming together of the human and the divine. I 
want to conclude today's episode by sharing two stories. One of them I've shared already in a way about my time in Guatemala in 2011, but I want to reinterpret it for a second in light of Segundo's essay on Revelation, Faith, and the Signs of the Times. I was born in Hinsdale, Illinois, southwest suburb of Chicago. I grew up in Homer Glen, Illinois, southwest suburb of Chicago. I had an experience of church, which was in many ways very beautiful. My mother and father chose to raise me in the Catholic Church. I had a loving home. I had an amazing church community. I participated in Vacation Bible School and am very much so appreciative uh, for all of those experiences. But I experienced a very different reality of church when I went to Guatemala in the summer of 2011 and saw the church as expression of the liberation theology movement. I had often in the United States interpreted the church as a conservative force in society, and I couldn't really fathom the idea of the church as something that would be radical, that would be involved in the social, political, economic movements of the day. Yet that's precisely what I saw in Guatemala. I saw a church that during the week was engaging in community organizing, a church that that was working in the fields, a church that then on Saturday would campaign for various figures like Rigoberta Menchu of the URNG Maiz party, and then on Sunday would worship at church, would go to Mass. And I saw that church and I saw the deep meaning that it could have for human beings, that the church as a reality that would bring hope not only in the afterlife, but also in the reality of the present moment. And that was a moment of conversion for me. We could say that I read the signs of the times, that distinction between the two churches that I carry within me. And while in many ways they're the same church, right? It's the same Jesus Christ. It's one church uh, throughout the world. We're united together, regardless of whether that church be in Illinois or in Guatemala. But the Guatemalan vision of church became one that was more significant, more attuned to my own interests, interests in politics, economics, society. And that, of course, led me in the direction of pursuing studies in liberation theology. So we see that what Segundo is saying here is true in reality, in that sense, in my own life. And then to speak a few years later of I had journeyed in college, I studied abroad quite a bit in college. And in my third year, I went to the University of Oxford in England. And that is when I met a Jesuit priest, Father Simon Bishop, an amazing man. At that time, I had a girlfriend. I was playing for the soccer team at Lady Margaret Hall. I was doing pretty well for myself academically, and I felt kind of set up, ready to go for a good life, potentially as a professor or lawyer, as a politician. I was feeling good. But in another way, I wasn't feeling good because while I had all of these external success possibilities, I was not internally feeling very content. And so when I met Father Simon Bishop and saw his joy, his peace, his love for God and for other people, how he cared for the, spe the people that he was accompanying, the students at the university, I thought to myself, how can this guy be so joyful when he does not have sex, he does not have a family, he does not have money, and he cannot even pick his job. 
and yet he has this incredible joy. Whereas in some ways I have those other things or could see myself having those other things, but I do not have that joy. And that is what led me to meet with him, that he would become my spiritual director and eventually led me to discover Ignatian spirituality and enter into the Society of Jesus. So in meeting Father Simon, a new life path, we could say, opened up before me, one that I found immensely attractive, one that was of deep human interest, something that I could understand because it was right before me in this human person and something that so clearly made a difference in his life and that could potentially make a difference in my own life, becoming a member of the Society of Jesus. So I think that there again, we see how Segundo has a deep wisdom in his writing and understanding human experience, human psychology, human the phenomenon of being human and how life decisions are made based on our experiences. And so too, we find that that is a parallel fact in the Bible, that human beings experience God, they reflect on their experience with God, they may write down their experiences of God, and we see that the hand of God is there in all of that, and we call it revelation. God speaking to human beings through human beings, and those documents being recorded and we call it the Bible, God's activity in human history for humans, with humans, written by humans. Thanks for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. That was part one of what will be a two-part series on Juan Luis Segundo's essay, Revelation, Faith, the Signs of the Times. So look forward to the second bit where we'll conclude our discussion of faith and then get into Segundo's interpretation of the signs of the times. I look forward to getting into that more with y'all next time. But for now, let us end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, we give you thanks for Pope Francis, for the prophetic words that we relayed at the beginning of this episode. Pope Francis, as a leader, has called the Church to conversion, to joy, to justice, to a true human community. And so we ask, too, that you would inspire us by the example of Pope Francis, by the example of the liberation theologians that we have been reading and discussing, by the example of Jesus Christ, to do your work of the promotion of justice, to do the work of reading the signs of the times, responding to the signs of the times with faith, and understanding that you are with us, revealing yourself to us in word and sacrament along the way. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We ask you to journey with us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.